If you're able, let's kneel for prayer. Our Father in heaven, I ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would join us here this morning, that you would accept our great need as a reason that you would help us, that you would accept the worthiness of Jesus as a reason that we ought to be helped. And I ask for this gift in the name of Jesus. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We're going to begin this morning with answering the question, why is it that knowledge follows virtue in Peter's ladder? Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and we're looking at verse 26. For God gives to a man that is good in his sight wisdom and knowledge and joy. Is it sensible why knowledge should follow virtue? To the man who is virtuous, God gives knowledge and wisdom. And the opposite to that idea is also true, that true knowledge is not available to a man who does not have virtue. Do you remember from Daniel chapter 12? It's in verse 10 where it says that None of the wicked will understand. It says this, none of the wicked will understand. So that the truth that is needed, the truth we need to have today, it's not a product of the intellect. Not that the strongest man has the knowledge and the weakest minded man has it not, but that the man who has virtue, to him it is given. And to the man who has not virtue, despite what genius he might have, he will not understand the truth for this time. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. We've just considered the first of six points that I want to bring out this morning. That first point was that knowledge is not a product of the intellect of the researcher but it is a gift of God to those who have cultivated virtue. Second Peter chapter 1, and looking at verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through, what does it say? Through the knowledge of God. If there is a way that we were to come into possession of more peace and more grace, it would be through a knowledge of God. Look at verse 3. According as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. How? Through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. If I could summarize this second point. It's that knowledge, the knowledge that we are to cultivate with diligence, is not just any knowledge. In fact, is there a forbidden knowledge? And we'll consider that in a moment. But it's a specific knowledge, a knowledge of Jesus, a knowledge of the Father, a knowledge of God is the knowledge that we are to cultivate. And through that cultivated knowledge will come to us grace 
and peace, and in fact, all things that pertain to life and godliness. Look down at verse 8. At the end of Peter's ladder, the goal of this entire, entire process, we read, For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If I could say this in another way, the knowledge that God gives to us, the knowledge of Jesus that is given to the virtuous, is not given to us as an end in itself. It has a purpose. That is, the knowledge of Jesus is a seed, and is the seed capable of being fruitful? The passage says it certainly will be fruitful. The condition leading to that effect is that we cultivate Peter's ladder. Said in a question and answer format, if the question is, why should we cultivate the faith and the virtue and the knowledge and the other virtues we'll hear about, the reason is so that our religion can be a fruitful religion. It can have fruit, and it will if we cultivate these things. But what knowledge is it particularly that is fruitful? It's the knowledge of Jesus. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. First Corinthians chapter 10. And we're looking at verse 4. Speaking about the children of Israel as they were going into the promised land, it says that they did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now this is the question. Did they recognize that that rock was Christ? You know, they did not know it. But it was so that God, through Christ, was giving them the very things they needed, and they did not know it. I can say this as simple as I know how to say it. This book is like that rock. This book is the knowledge of Jesus that gives us gives us all things that we need, all things that pertain to life and godliness. We have this book. And probably on a quiz we would answer it correctly that we know that these are the words of Jesus. But if angels were asked to testify in the judgment whether we act as if these words are the words of Jesus, they would have to testify in the negative. We do not treat them with the kind of respect that we would give if we thought they were the words of Jesus. We do not give them the kind of attention that we would if we thought that they were the words of our Savior. Do you understand what I'm saying? There was a rock that was Jesus, and it was not recognized. There is a book that has the knowledge of Jesus, and it deserves more attention, more respect than it gets. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 's a trick that the devil has been playing and since I don't attend non-adventist churches I don't know if it's a Christian wide trick or if it's just specific to my denomination but it has been a real putting down of knowledge I mean I think if you'll think back to your experience in Sabbath school that you will have heard this a number of times a statement like this that 
we can know the whole Bible and that won't save us. It's not how much you know. It's And there's all kinds of ways to... Knowledge is put down and other virtues are exalted. But you should know that in the Bible, the virtue of knowledge is exalted very highly. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Casting down, what does it say? There's something I want us to understand about imaginations. Listen, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the, what does it say? This is one of those six points, and eventually you'll have the list in your head, but now they're just coming in an introduction. It's that there is a competitor in your life with the knowledge of Jesus. There's more than one, but the one mentioned here is your imagination. Do you follow me in this? That if life eternal is to know Jesus Christ, and if my imagination competes with the knowledge of Jesus Christ, that my imagination competes with my eternal life and my experience. Do you follow me in that logic? It's the truth of God, and I want to say it to you again. Satan knows that life eternal is to know Jesus Christ. My imaginations are in competition, if not controlled by my will, they are in competition with my knowledge of Jesus Christ, and they endanger my chances to get to heaven. I did a a research project recently. And if, you, if any of you want to read this research project, I'll send it to you. You can email me. My email is memorizable. It's canvassing at canvassing.org. It was an, a research project on the imagination in the writings of Ellen White. And I'll tell you one of the conclusions. Our generation has a diseased imagination. The television that we watched when we were children, the billboards that we see, the way that we have been in the habit of talking, in the last 60, 70 years, those effects have led to a diseased imagination that greatly endangers our spiritual life. What was the imagination for? God gave mankind imagination to allow him to benefit from events in the past that he did not experience. For example, creation or Calvary. The imagination was given to allow me to go back and play those realities in my mind, to think them through and to allow them to grab my consciousness because truth only affects us when we're thinking about it. The imagination was a tool to allow truth to change our hearts. That is such a large thought. I want to say it again. What is it that sanctifies the soul? It's truth. Truth sanctifies a man, but most men aren't sanctified, even those that know the truth. Truth sanctifies a man when he is thinking about it. The imagination was given as a tool in my mind to allow me to replay the story of Calvary, to play through the story of creation, also to allow me to gain benefit from events that have not yet happened, events that are matters of prophecy, for example, the judgment. I can picture the scene going on now in heaven. It's a real scene. It's not a fiction, 
but I can't see it with my eyes. Where can I see it? It's with my imagination. As a tool, the imagination controlled by the will will draw me closer to heaven. It will cultivate my love for Jesus. The imagination, when under control, does not compete with my knowledge of Jesus. It rather augments my knowledge of Jesus. But God never intended the imagination to be in the lead. That is, he did not intend that my imagination would pick a storyline or an imaginary experience or picture me saying or doing something or someone else. The imagination was never to go off in daydreams. When the imagination takes the lead, it becomes perverted and diseased. It exalts itself above the very thing that I need so that the realities of the judgment of Calvary become smaller in my experience and maybe I could even go days without thinking of them. If that happens to me, the gospel is losing its hold on my heart and I am becoming harder and more perverted as time persists. All these thoughts are in the verse we just read. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. There is another high thing that that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, and we're looking at verse 9. Just a moment. Verse 26. For then must Jesus often have suffered once since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world... He has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was once... I'm not in the right verse. No wonder it wasn't saying the right thing. You're in the right verse. I just saw chapter 10 underneath. Hebrews 10 verse 26. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth... There remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Willful sin militates against the knowledge of God. This is part of the first thought we shared. Why is it that that knowledge follows virtue? It's because to the man who is good of heart, we read in Ecclesiastes that God gives him wisdom and knowledge and understanding then what happens when a man chooses to do something he knows is wrong? What effect would that have on God's gift to him of wisdom and knowledge and understanding? It cuts off that gift. Willful sin is a high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God in my experience, and for that reason, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. It's because to know Jesus is life eternal. Let me summarize some things we've said and we'll move on. If you know someone who is very intelligent, you should know that does not increase the chance 
that they know the truth about what is true in this book, even if they've given their entire life to studying it. I mean that a knowledge of the holy is not a product of intellect. It is a product of consecration. I had a terrible experience once. I mean terrible. It didn't affect me hardly at all. It was terrible to watch. I was at a camp meeting, and a lady who introduced herself to me was speaking about a lecture she had just heard. And something she had heard wasn't true. I showed her in the Bible that it wasn't so. And she told me that the man who had given the lecture had a Ph.D. in theology that he had studied these things and knew Hebrew and Greek and the biblical languages. And what she was trying to communicate was that for me to disagree with him was arrogant. It's just not true. It's not arrogant for you to disagree with me or for me to disagree with you if we have the Bible. We can't trust men Why can't we trust men? Because knowledge is not a product of research or of intellect. It's a gift from heaven. And if I can't read your heart, I can't know whether or not you understand the truth. What is it that exalts itself against the knowledge of God in my experience? It's imaginations out of control. And imaginations today have been perverted and are out of control They take the lead and the mind follows them instead of the mind using the imagination as a tool and placing it on holy objects. The imagination places itself where it wishes to go and it creates all kinds of interpersonal problems. Evil surmising, for example, is a disease of the imagination. When you think others think ill of you, that's a sickness of the mind. Turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians. Chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, and we're looking at verse 3. Maybe you don't know that Colossians 2 is a special chapter for Seventh-day Adventist. It's a chapter that's written not only to the people of Colossae, but to the people of Laodicea. You'll see that in the first two verses. It says in verse 3 about Jesus that, "...in whom are hid all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." And the idea I want to share with you, the idea we mentioned earlier that the knowledge of God is to be a fruitful thing in our experience... I want you to know what kind of fruit the knowledge of God is intended to have. There are two passages that show us. Let's look at them. Look at Philippians chapter 3. Just back a few pages. Philippians chapter 3, and we're looking at verse 8. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8. Yes, doubtless... And I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, 
that I may win Christ. And the first thought I want you to see in this passage before we go to the second, excuse me, the first thought I want you to see is that the knowledge of God in my experience requires a sacrificing of certain things. But we've already learned what those things are that I give up to have the knowledge of God. What are they? Willful sin and an uncontrolled imaginations. I give up willful sin of every type and an uncontrolled imagination, and that is how I win the knowledge of Jesus. Now turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15, and we're looking at verse 34. Awake to righteousness and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God. Listen carefully. I speak this to your, what does it say? What is shameful in this verse? That some do not have the knowledge of God. When I was young in Sabbath school, there was a song that was sung in that Sabbath school about a gypsy boy that lay dying alone at the end of the day. Maybe some of you remember that from long ago, maybe from recently. And something in that song said, tell it again, tell it again, salvation story repeat o'er and o'er, till none can say of the children of men, no one has ever told me before. Do you understand that what Paul said is true? That it's shameful to us that there are some that have not a knowledge of God? Do you remember those prophecies? There's six of them in the Bible, all the way from Exodus 32 to Revelation 18. There are promises about the entire earth being full of the glory of God. Yet two of them specify what it means. They say that the entire earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's a shame to us that the men around us do not know about Jesus. That's a shame. Why does God give us knowledge? We are given to share. I want to show this to you another place. Turn your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah chapter 23. We're looking at verse 30. You know, it is an easy thing for you to convince someone that you have a large knowledge of Scripture. It is easy. It is so easy that if you will learn just four or five verses know their references and what they say and share them with someone, they will conclude that you know a great deal about the Bible. And it's not sensible, and you shouldn't think that about others when you find that they share with you a few verses. Does that make sense to you what I just said? 
There are many people who've been duped. They followed men because the man could turn in his Bible and show them 15 or 20 passages that conclude that he must really know his Bible, and that is such not true. That was not English, but it was true. <laughs> Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 30. Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, saith the Lord, listen, that steal my words, every one from his, what does it say? Did you ever read this where Paul speaks of himself as if he's a debtor? It's in Romans 1 where he says, I'm a debtor to the Greeks and to the barbarians, to the wise and to the unwise. And then he says in Romans 9, he says, don't owe any man anything but to love one another. There are some debts that you can't escape. One of them is the debt to share the truth and the other is the debt to love. We owe them. It works like this. God gave us love, but he intended for us to share it. And my topic is knowledge. And listen, it's the same idea. When God gave me knowledge, it wasn't for me to keep. It was for me to share. It happens to me periodically that someone will ask me, so how do you study the Bible? What they mean is, how do you end up remembering where things are? I think it's what they mean. And would you like to know the answer to that question? You share the little bit God teaches you tomorrow. In fact, if in my devotions tomorrow I learn something and then I share it with one of you, I will know it for the rest of the day. If I will share it a couple times this next week, I will know it for a few weeks. If I will share it 10 or 12 times in this next month, I will know it for a year. And if a few more times in that year, it will go into long-term memory and I'll know it for the rest of my life. It's the same with all of us. Is it shameful that we don't remember the things we learned in the last six months of our devotions? It's a shame that God gave us a gift and we kept it as if it was for ourselves. Turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 19. Proverbs chapter 19, and we're looking at verse 27. I'm not going to ask for a commitment on this verse, but I think you ought to do it. Proverbs 19:27 says, Cease, my son, to hear the instruction that causeth to err from the words of knowledge. It's not any different than the command that was given to Adam and Eve. It's the same command, but made practical for us. To Adam and Eve, they were told not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Eve did eat from it. If she had stopped there, it's possible that the earth would not have fallen. It would have been her and not her husband. But she continued to eat, and in eating, she ended up having an infectious influence on those around her. It's like that with the education that the world has to offer. 
it's too late for the verse to say to most people, never hear the instruction that causes to err from the words of knowledge. It's too late to forbid us to get started. So what does the verse do? It forbids us to continue. Cease, my son, to hear the instruction that causes to err from the words of knowledge. I'm thinking of so many verses that are this very same idea. If you're taking notes, you could write some of them down. One of them is Romans 16, verses 17 and 18. It says, Mark those which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus, but their own belly, who by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the, of the uneducated. It says the simple. It's a very tricky thing that the devil said to Eve, as if she could get the benefit from the tree and not get the disease that comes with it. Turn back with me in your Bible a few pages to Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4. We're looking at verse 19. It says, The way of the wicked is darkness... They know not at what they stumble. The illustration is simple enough. If I, a weak human, walk into a dark forest at nighttime, knowing that there are traps there, I cannot say I will be very careful and not step into them. Or if I say it, I'm a very foolish man. When we fall, we don't know when we are falling. That is, if we believe a lie, we hardly know that we have believed a lie. And this is just one of six points. I don't want to over-labor it, except it's so practical. What is it that exalts itself against the knowledge of God? It can be my imagination. It can be my willful sin. But if I'm not careful, it can be something that comes from without. It's the instruction that causes to err from the words of knowledge. There was a young lady back in, I really don't remember when. I guess it was the late 90s. She lived here on this campus for some time. She got married at a young age to a young man who had similar values and ideas as her. In fact, she was a feast day keeper, and he became a feast day keeper. And I, hard, I, I don't recommend feast day keeping. I anti-recommend it. <laughs> but she was very excited to find someone with similar values and similar ideas as herself. And so her parents were quite excited for the same thing. And when the two of them became a couple, they were in favor. I learned all of this from her, and so it could all be faulty. Does that make sense to you what I just said? But I'm telling you her version of this story. So they got married. 
and they moved away. And they entered into a public educational system. And as he studied biology, he saw things he had never understood before in his life. He began to see connections and to understand things in the natural world that it seemed like they had just been held from his eyes. And what he saw helped him realize that this book is fiction. He became an atheist, but a very kind one. I mean, so kind that he would not talk to me about it for fear of undermining my faith. But not so kind as to be faithful to his wife. And he left her. And she was divorced before she was really ready to get married. That's a very sad story. And I told it to you for one reason. That young man did not intend, as far as I can see, to trip out of his Christian experience into infidelity. But did the Bible give some advice that he ignored? It gave some advice. It said, Cease, my son, to hear the instruction that causeth to err from the words of knowledge. It said, Mark those which cause divisions and offenses, contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus. And when we ignore the light, Jesus said, While you have the light, walk in the light, lest darkness come upon you. And so it happened to him. Turn with me in your Bibles back a page or two to Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 2, and we're looking at verse 6. It says, For the Lord giveth wisdom. Do we know enough already to know that he doesn't give wisdom to all? To whom does he not give wisdom? It would be to those who cherish sin. None of the wicked will understand. For the Lord gives wisdom. Out of his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He lays up sound wisdom for the righteous. He is a buckler to them that walk uprightly. I think until I was 30 years old, when I read the word buckler, I thought of something related to the word butler. And so I'll just tell you, for anyone who never looked it up, it means a small shield and is not related to the word butler. It says, reading in verse 7, He layeth up sound wisdom for the righteous. He is a portable shield to them that walk uprightly. He keepeth the paths of judgment and preserves the way of his saints. Listen carefully. Then shalt thou understand righteousness and judgment and equity, yes, in every good path. When wisdom entereth into thine heart and knowledge is pleasant to your soul, listen, discretion shall preserve thee and understanding shall keep thee to deliver thee from the way of evil men, of the evil man, from the man that speaks forward things. If I could say these thoughts as simply as I know how, the Lord Jesus does not want us to be shaken out in the shaking. He wants to preserve us from the strange ideas that are afloat. 
there are many strange ideas afloat in Southern California. And God wants to preserve us from the strange ideas that are floating around. How does this passage say that he preserves us? How does he do it? It's by giving us wisdom and knowledge. But can he give wisdom and knowledge to every man? He can't. If we cherish a sin, he can't teach us. If he can't teach us, he can't preserve us. If he can't preserve us, we will be deceived and fall. And isn't that what has happened to so very many? Turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 28. I guess I know that I'm not in Southern California, but I meet so many people here that I usually see in Southern California. (laughs) Isaiah 28, and we're looking at verse 9. It's a good question in consideration of what we've learned already. Whom shall he teach knowledge? Do you see that our salvation hinders on the answer to that question? If to know Jesus is eternal life, then the question, whom will he teach about Jesus, is a salvational question. And the answer is, well, the question continues before the answer, and whom shall he make to understand doctrine? The answer is, them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts. For precept must be upon precept, and precept upon precept. There are two ideas in 9 and 10 that answer the question. The first is that we must move beyond our baby Christian experience. That is, a baby is dependent on someone else for its nutrition, and that is a dangerous position for a Christian. Is it essential that we go through a baby stage in our Christianity? It is. God will use someone to teach us about the gospel, But we are vulnerable when we are babies. And while we are babies, we need someone to watch over us carefully and to feed us well. We are in grave danger while we are spiritual infants. Is it essential that we remain in that condition? It is entirely dangerous. It is folly, fatal, to remain as an infant. Because someone will not care for you properly. Somewhere along the way, you will become malnourished and die if you remain a child always. So whom will God teach? Those who are weaned from dependence upon others for their understanding and learn to depend directly on his word. The second answer is the same in another way. It's those that take here a little and there a little. That is those who use the cross-textual method of Bible study. So a 40-second sermon on this topic. Exogesis. If it's taken in the narrow way it usually is, is not the proper way to understand the Scripture. What I mean by that is that this Bible was written by a variety of men. The men 
were given truths in their mind and they used their own vocabulary and their own way of thinking to write those words down the best way that they could. They wrote them down accurately. But if you want to know God's idea, you have to read the idea as he gave it to several of them. And by comparing spiritual things with spiritual, you find God's idea unencumbered with the weaknesses of the languages and of the times and of translation. That's the way God teaches those who compare spiritual things with spiritual. And when we come down to the use of the passage itself and a lexicon or a dictionary, we remove God from being our teacher and become dependent upon the reasoning of men and the reasoning of ourselves and the weaknesses of the man in the one place that he wrote. And that deserves more attention and it doesn't have time for more. Turn with me in your Bible to Psalm 139. This is our last point, and then I'll tell you the six points I've told you because I never enumerated them. Psalm 139. We're looking at verses 1 through 6. Psalm 139, verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thoughts afar off. Thou compassed me my path and my lying down, and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, and I cannot attain unto it. What I need is a knowledge of Jesus. What Jesus has is a knowledge of me. He knows my character defects and my hidden sins and my problems. He is very well acquainted with me. Does this have a practical bearing on my life? It does if you understand that we live in the Day of Atonement. That this is the day when we are to be searching our heart and putting away our sin. What value is it if Jesus knows, if God knows me? Look at verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. But isn't it apparent from the first part of this chapter that he already knows my heart? That David is saying, search me and reveal myself to me. That I want God's knowledge of me to become my knowledge of me so that I can take my sins and put them away. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. That last thought is this, that in the Day of Atonement, a knowledge that we need besides a knowledge of Jesus is a knowledge of self. It's to be daily searching our heart and pleading with God to show us the sins that inside of us would prevent us from attaining to a knowledge of him. That is, for pleading with him to show us that lack of virtue that keeps us from attaining unto the knowledge that we need. We've talked today about the fact that the first point was that the knowledge of Jesus is the knowledge that we want to add to virtue. Our second thought is that our imagination and our cherished sins, and our false education are high things that must be cast down. 
they exalt themselves against the knowledge of Jesus and our experience. The third idea is that there is a forbidden knowledge and that we're not aware of how that forbidden knowledge trips us up. So we end up infecting others. God's counsel is to cease hearing the forbidden knowledge. The fourth point, the last that we talked about, is that we need a knowledge of self. Who has it? God has it. And if we search our hearts daily and plead with him to show us, he will reveal to us enough to put away our sins. The fifth point is that God gives us the knowledge we need of Jesus, but he never intended to give it to us as an end, but rather to give it to us as a channel, that as he gave it to us, we would become debtors to share it with those who have it not. And if they do not know, it is a shame to us. And the last thought is that we want to be taught of God. Does God want to teach us? He does, but he explained to us the two requirements. One is that we be weaned from dependence on our other human teachers and that we learn to compare Scripture with Scripture and to search for his knowledge ourselves in the word that he has given. Then he will teach us the way he teaches eagles to fly and to find the food that they need. Let's kneel for a closing prayer. Our Father in heaven, I ask that you will accept our kneeling down as just a, some, some symbol of the fact that we are dependent on you, that we recognize that without your giving us the gift of knowledge that we will not have it. We recognize that without the gift of the knowledge of your son Jesus that we lack all things that pertain to life and godliness. And I ask that you would give us the faith and the virtue we need as a prerequisite to attaining the knowledge of your Son. We don't deserve these gifts, but we ask for them in the name of Jesus. Amen.